The following audio is from Emmanuel Baptist Church. More information about Emmanuel is available at our website, www.myemmanuel.net. up on the screens. Let me also say my amen to Karen's prayer. I am so excited about Vacation Bible School this week. I want to ask you to join me for five days, Monday through Friday, in praying for what happens here in this building. I believe it will have eternal results. There will be children who will be in heaven with us forever because of this very week. I also believe that God may do a work in calling some of these children to be future pastors and ministers and missionaries and church planters. And so uh, be in prayer for us. Don't forget the value of Vacation Bible School. There will also be some children that come that uh, just found out their parents are going to get divorced. Some that will come that have been abused or molested. Some that will have difficulties. Pray for us this week as we minister to these children. In Hebrews chapter 9, we are going through Hebrews concept by concept, and we come to another chapter where he's going to reiterate what he's been saying all along. And so it it does me uh, good, I think, just to stop a little bit when you've had long, busy weeks, and you're like, yeah, yeah, we're in Hebrews, but I can't remember what happened last week, the last two weeks. Here's what the writer's been saying to us. In chapter 1, he told us that Jesus is indeed God. He's completely divine. And one of the most eloquent introductions in all of the New Testament, he tells us Jesus is God. In chapter 2, he tells us that this same Jesus who is God is also completely man at the same time. He tells us that Jesus is superior to the angels, that Jesus is superior to Aaron, Jesus is superior to Moses, Jesus is superior to the Levitical priesthood. He He has a priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. He's also uh, superior to the Old Covenant, and he's a priest of the New Covenant. And so the writer's been building all of this all along. As he builds all of that, he's been telling us that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was a perfect sacrifice, meaning that it fulfilled, it satisfied the righteous requirement of our holy, righteous, heavenly Father. So that's what he's been doing all along. Pastor Steve did a marvelous job last week with chapter 8, talking about the fact that God wants relationship with you. And God's the one who defines that. We don't get to come to God on our own terms and say, God, I want a relationship with you. Here's what I think it looks like. God's the one who defines what that looks like. And so we're going to see more of that in chapter 9. In fact, chapter 9, the writer continues, and he says, Jesus is better than the old covenant. And he's going to give us four more ways in which he's better. Let's do this work together, beginning in verse 1, Hebrews chapter 9. Now, even the first covenant, that's the law, the old covenant, it had regulations for worship. It had an earthly place of worship, an earthly place of holiness. And it was originally, verse 2 says, a tent. So let me stop here because people get confused about this. The temple was the building. It was an actual architectural building that Solomon built. It was built uh, along the same dimensions as the original tabernacle. The tabernacle is not a building. The tabernacle was an actual tent. The children of Israel left Egypt, and God gave them instructions on how to build 
the tabernacle. So the metaphor here, the allusion is to, not to the temple, but to the tent, the tabernacle. And he says about it in verse 2, it was prepared in a certain way. There was a first section in which there's a lampstand and a table of showbread and the presence of God. It also had a holy place. And then behind the second curtain, uh, there was the most holy place, or the phrase you hear me use a lot is the holy of holies, having a golden altar of incense, having the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold. Inside the Ark of the Covenant was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's actual staff, the one that budded when God demonstrated that he had the authority over the other guys. The tablets of the covenant, this is the Ten Commandments that Moses brought. Above them are the cherubim of glory. They're also made of gold, and they are overshadowing the top of the Ark of the Covenant, which is the mercy seat. And then he says, because he's writing to Jews, he's writing to Hebrews, uh, you already know all these things. I don't have time to talk about them. So uh, of these things, we cannot speak any more of right now. I've got to get going to what I'm going to. My problem is I don't have a room full of Hebrews. I have a room full of Gentiles. And so it's not only likely, it's, it's, a, it's a surety that you do not have the reverence and the understanding of what the tabernacle actually meant to every Jew, later the temple. I'm going to do my best to try to convey this to you. Here's how I'm going to choose to do it. When Jesus, God, gives us the revelation of himself about all that he believes, that he knows, that we need to know, when, he, when we have all that revelation, in that revelation, God gives us exactly Two chapters describing the complete creation of the universe. The entire creation of the universe is in two chapters. Every scientist who ever lived, every person who's got curiosity, everybody who's ever seen the grandeur of the mountains and the oceans, and you, you, we have questions, and we, we want to ask God all these questions about creation because we have two chapters is all we have. The impression I get from God, because he's perfect and right, that he only gave us two chapters because to him it's, well, honestly, it's kind of ho-hum. If you said, God, how, how did you do this? He would say, I spoke it into existence. I said, let there be light, and there was light. Now, I say that because when it comes to a description of the tabernacle, God gives us 50 chapters. 50 chapters of the tabernacle covering every single detail of it, so much so that we can put up a diagram, a picture, a rendition of it, and I can tell you it looked exactly like that because we have all of the exact dimensions, how they were supposed to do everything. That's how much it meant to God. God is relating. He's finding relationship. He's finding the worship of his people in connecting with them through this covenant. And so it is more important for him 
that you understand that he wants to relate to you. He wants to know you. He wants to have personal relationship. He wants you to have the forgiveness of sins than how he hung Jupiter and where he put it. That's what you have to understand by this. Now, there's something more in terms of the tabernacle. The tabernacle, what we've just read here, is a picture because all of the Old Covenant is a symbol. The Old Covenant was never a way to get to God. We've already read three or four times in Hebrews, the Old Covenant could never make you perfect. The, the blood of goats and bulls could never perfect you. There wasn't any forgiveness in the Old Covenant. So the Old Covenant is a foreshadowing. It's a symbol. It's a picture of the real thing, and the real thing is Jesus. The, the writer of Hebrews is saying over and over and over again is Jesus is everything. It's always only ever been about Jesus. So when you look at the tabernacle and you look at uh, the, the furniture in the tabernacle, it's all a picture of Jesus. The, there's an entryway right there. You see the entrance curtain? It's about 30 feet wide. Actually, it's not about. It's 30 feet wide. It's 30 feet wide, but it's the only entrance in and out. There's no fire exits. There's no additional parking entrance. There's one entrance to God. And Jesus would say, I'm the door, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. There's a table where the sacrifice is slain, and Jesus would say, I am the perfect sacrifice. I lay down my life, I take it back up again. There's the brazen uh, uh, altar there where the sacrifice was burned, and Jesus Christ literally gave his life. Jesus didn't get hurt real bad for you, he died for you. There is the, uh, there's the bronze uh, laver. Uh, it's, it's, it's a wash pan. It's where the priests sanctified themselves. It's where they cleansed themselves so that they could serve the Lord. And we discover in the New Testament that the Holy Spirit of God sanctifies the believer so that we can serve the Lord. And then you go further. You go inside. There's the lampstand. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. There's the altar of incense. Jesus now says, I'm at the right hand of the throne of the Father to do what? Make constant intercession for you. And even the incense rising to God was the picture of the prayers of the priest interceding on behalf of the people. There's all of this in the temple, which is simply a picture of Christ Jesus himself. Now, inside the holy place is the second holy place. It's a more holy place. It's the most holy place. No one could go in there. Only the high priest could go, and he could only go once a year. He had first sacrifice for his own sins, and then he would go in for others. In fact, the whole temple worked like this. If you weren't a Jew, you couldn't even go in the outer court. If you were in some way born uh, disabled, you couldn't go in. If you were a woman, you could only go into the outer court. If you were a man, you couldn't go into the holy place. Only the Levites could do that. And if you were a Levite, only the high priest could go into the most holy place and only once a year. And in there was the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant had the manna in it. Jesus would say, I'm the bread of life. The Ark of the Covenant had a symbol of the authority of God, the rod of Aaron that budded. And Jesus said, I have the authority to lay my life down and to take it back up again. The Scripture says, all authority has been given from the Father to the Son. He'll be the judge who returns one day as King of kings and Lord of lords. But on the Ark of the Covenant is 
the mercy seat. This is where the glory of God stayed. It's where he dwelled. When the children of Israel left Egypt, that's where the glory of God was. When it was time to move, the glory of God would come up off of the mercy seat, and he would move, and everybody would pack up. They would roll up the tabernacle, roll up all their tents, their homes. They would travel. When the glory of God stopped, they would stop there, and the glory of God would rest there. And the mercy seat is where forgiveness happened. It's where mercy happened. When, uh, when the Jews got scattered all around the world, uh, many of them didn't read Hebrew. And so the Jewish rabbis wanted all the Hebrews to be able to read the Scriptures. And so they translated the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, into Koine Greek, which was the, the language, not the classical Greek that, that a lot of people didn't read, but the language of the masses at the time. They translated the Old Testament into Greek. That translation is called the Septuagint. The Septuagint was completed 130 years before Christ was born. When they translated it, they came to the word mercy seat. You find it in Exodus, you find it in Ezekiel. And they gave it the, the, the Greek word helisterion. Uh, now, if, you just, if you're getting lost and your eyes are starting to roll back in your head, you don't have to remember the word. But here's what I want you to see. When the New Testament writers would begin to write inspired by the Holy Spirit of God in the New Testament about who Jesus is and what he did on the cross, they use the same word. It's often translated in the New Testament, propitiation. It means to satisfy the holy requirements of God. But it's the exact same word. You see, they understood that the tabernacle was a picture of Jesus. Let me show you one of them. Hold your place there in Hebrews 9. Flip with me back to Romans chapter 3. Romans is a systematic theology. The Apostle Paul's never been to Rome. He's writing to the church to let them know what he believes. And he wants them to know what he believes so that they will support his missionary endeavors as he goes to Spain. So since it's a systematic theology, he starts at the very beginning. He starts with the depravity of man, the fact that we're all sinners, that we all need a Savior. And then he talks about that Savior. When he gets to Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21, here's what he says. But now, he's no longer talking about the old covenant, he's talking about the new covenant, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, separate from the law, separate from the old covenant, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. You see, the tabernacle was all a picture so that when Jesus came, you would go, oh yeah, he's the Messiah. That was the purpose of it. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ is for all who believe. For there is no distinction, since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All who trust in Him by faith are justified by His grace because of their good works, because they go to church on Sundays, because they put something in the offering plate. No, the Bible says, as a gift. God gives you forgiveness, grace, mercy, as the free gift of God. It's It comes through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, verse 25. Speaking of Christ Jesus, he's the one whom God put forward as a, here's the word I wanted you to see. It's hilasterion. It's translated here, propitiation, in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it's translated mercy seat. Do you know what Jesus is? He's your mercy seat. Jesus is the place where you get mercy. Jesus is the place where you forget forgiveness. The high priest would go in with the blood and sprinkle the blood of bulls and goats on the mercy seat. But Jesus Christ shed his own blood for you. 
So the writer of the New Testament takes this idea of the tabernacle and the temple, and he now says, uh, not just the writer of the New Testament, Paul to the Corinthian church, he says, don't you know that your body is the temple of God and that God himself resides in you and you don't belong to yourself? Your heart is the mercy seat of Christ. Christ is the mercy seat. He lives there. The idea that Christians can sometimes just go do what we want, say what we want, is foreign to the concept of Scripture. You have the divine, holy, precious Son of God who indwells you as His mercy seat. Say amen to that. So here's how this really ends up. Let's see if we can do this. And I I want you to participate, okay? These are not rhetoric. Which would you rather have, a tabernacle or Jesus? Which would you rather have, a sacrifice table or Jesus? Which would you rather have, an Ark of a Covenant or Jesus? You see, it doesn't compare, does it? The New Covenant is so much better than the Old Covenant that it doesn't even make sense to compare it, but the writer has to do it so that the Jews will understand. Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 9. In Hebrews chapter 9, the writer continues. I want you to find with me verse 11. And uh, he says the second thing. Did I give you the point to Hebrew? I didn't give you the first point. Let me do it because some of you are OCD and you won't be able to listen the rest of the time. The tabernacle was a picture of Christ. Jesus is not in a symbolic holy of holies. He's not in the holy of holies that's in a tent or a tabernacle. He's in the real holy of holies. He's in the presence of God. He's at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. And he has opened it to us. Remember when he died on the cross? The veil that kept everybody out of the most holy place, was torn in two, and he made it available to us through his blood. Okay, there's my point. Now you've got it. Some of you can continue to listen now. Verse 11. When Christ appeared as a high priest, we've been talking about that for weeks now. He's a high priest better than Aaron, better than the Levitical high priest after the order of Melchizedek, and the high priest of a new covenant. When he appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, Then through a greater, a better, a more perfect tent, not one made with hands, not one of this creation, not an earthly tent like the tabernacle, but the real thing, he entered once for all into the holy place. That is the actual presence of the Father. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. Thus securing a partial redemption. Is that what your Bible says? A temporary redemption. A flawed redemption? No. What Jesus did, since he's the perfect sacrifice, he was able to accomplish a perfect, eternal redemption. Say amen? So that's what he did for us. That's what he accomplished in our lives. If the blood, verse 13, of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of a defiled person with the ashes of a heifer, that's the stuff the the Jews all understood, if that's sanctified for the purification of flesh... How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now, let me just say this one more time. The writer of Hebrews has said this about three or four times now, so let's make sure everybody gets it. You can't get to heaven through your own goodness. That's what he calls dead works. Your good works are dead dead, like a battery that's dead. They don't have the power to get you where you need to go. 
Your dead works can never accomplish that for you. Jesus accomplished it for you by his perfect sacrifice. But when he saves us, even though it's a free gift, even though we receive it from him without any cost to us, it cost him his life, we get the free gift of eternal life. We don't get the free gift of eternal life to observe. You don't get salvation to watch others. You're not saved to sit. You're saved to serve. That's why God saved you. You're not saved to be saved. You're saved to serve and bring glory to the eternal righteous Father. So it's a legitimate question for those of you who say, oh, I'm saved, but if you don't serve, for us to say, hmm, I don't know. Because real salvation, real justification, always, always, always becomes real sanctification. It doesn't ever stop. Now, you, you might stop for a season, but if it's real salvation, it'll come again. It'll pick back up again. We trip, we stumble, we fall, we stub our toes, spiritually speaking. But real salvation always moves us to the likeness of Christ. And that's what he's talking about here. So here's point number two in the teaching. Jesus did not accomplish our salvation with the symbolic spilling of blood. That's goats and bulls of the Old Testament. But with the literal, actual historical shedding of his own perfect sacrifice. That's what God did for us. Now let's think about that sacrifice for a little bit. In in just a little bit, as we get to the end of chapter 9, I'm going to read a verse that says, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. The scripture says, the wages of sin is death. So Jesus Christ had to die for us. He couldn't just get hurt real bad for us. He had to die for us because our sin is that great. The wages of sin is death. Now, there's two ways to pay the sin debt. You can receive the death of Jesus Christ. You can receive his death to pay the wages of sin in your life. Or you can pay it yourself. Here's how those two deaths work. Jesus paid the sin debt of all of us because he's God. He's infinite. He could do that. Let's assume for just a moment, this will be really funny, but let's just do it for a moment, that I'm perfect, okay? Let's say I'm perfect and I fulfill the old, all the old covenant, so I want to die for you. I could. My problem is, since I'm a finite creation, I can only die for one of you. I'd have to pick which one of you that I would die for, but I could do that if I were perfect but I could only die for one. Jesus Christ was God, so he's infinite. Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, had the capacity to suffer infinitely in a finite period of time. Since you're a finite being, the only way you can pay for your sin, eternal death, is with an infinite amount of time. That's why hell is an eternal separation from God. Does that make sense now? Do you understand what Jesus really did for you? That, that's, that's why no Christian should ever get to that place where they're apathetic about the gospel or they're lukewarm about the gospel. When you stop and consider who Jesus is and what he did, it should always be life-changing for us. Well, we must hasten on. Let's get to the third point. Look with me, beginning in about, oh, let me begin in verse 23, okay? 
So he's talking about the Old Testament, and he keeps telling us that's a copy. It's a symbol. It's a picture. So he says, thus it was necessary for the copies, he's talking about the Old Covenant, of the true things, which are the heavenly things, to be purified with all of these blood rites. But the heavenly things themselves deserve a better sacrifice than this. You can't get to heaven by the blood of a goat. It it demands something better. So Christ did something better, verse 24. He entered into the holy place, not made with hands, not the one in the tabernacle, not the ones that that are copies. He entered into the real holy of holies, into heaven itself. And he appeared there in the presence of God on our behalf. This is mediator. This is who he is. He, he did it for us. He didn't do it to offer himself repeatedly like the earthly high priest who enters the holy place year after year after year with blood that's not his own. Well, if he's going to do that, he'd have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But since he's perfect, since he's infinite, he appeared, here's the phrase to underline in your Bible, once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now, there's more there than I have the time to talk about, but here's the part that I want you to get. Jesus did not attempt to secure our salvation with the symbols of the old covenant. If he did that, he'd have to sacrifice that over and over and over and over again. But he gave his perfect, infinite, divine life once for all, so that he could completely put away sin. Do you, do you realize your sin problem is actually already taken care of? When Satan comes to lie to you about sin, when he comes to tempt you to sin, when he comes to deceive you and trick you to sin, you don't have to sin. You have the Holy Spirit in you. You've given your life to Christ. If you're here and you've never given your life to Christ, you can do that this morning. You can say, Jesus, here's my life. I, I, I repent of my sins. I want you to be my boss and Savior. You can win over him. In fact, all of Satan's tricks are lies. Do you understand that? That's all he's got left in his toolbox are lies. He comes and he lies and he tells you, you're stupid. You're ugly. No one likes you. He tells you, you're this, you're that. God doesn't love you. You're this, you're that. He, he, he's just lying to you. When Satan comes to lie to you, use God's word as your truth. You know what you want to know how much your, your value has already been established. Did you know that? God loves you so much that Jesus died for you. That's how much you're worth to him. Your worth isn't your bank account. It's not your looks. It's not your clothes. It's not your car. It's not your intelligence. It's certainly not found uh, in your IRA. Your worth is established by God himself. Who designed you in his image, created you in his image, and saved you with his most precious, perfect son. And when he did that, he took away your sin problem. Say amen. Now, you said amen like white people. Say amen. Yeah, that's better. One day I'm going to leave you and I'm going to go to a black church. I'm just telling you. Okay, I'm out of time, but the, there's a point here that we cannot miss. And I skipped over a passage and saved this for last. Find verse 15. Therefore, Jesus is the mediator. That's our word of the morning. This is what God did for us, what we couldn't do for ourselves, of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised inheritance. So the writer is going to 
use another play on words here. In the Greek, the word for covenant and the word for last will and testament, will, are the same words. And so in verse 16, he says, where a will is involved, the death of the one who had the will has to be established before the will goes into effect. So here's, this is just like icing on the cake. Here's what the writer does for us that's a whole lot of fun. He's been saying to us, covenant, 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 covenant. And then he stops and he says, will. It's the same word. If we're reading in the Greek, we go like, oh, he's doing a play on words there. And so here's what he's about to say. He's about to talk about there was one will, and now there's a new will. The problem with the first will is it had stipulations. In fact, it had hundreds of stipulations, which you find in the law of the Old Testament. Some people are like, oh, there's Ten Commandments. Oh, no. There's Ten Commandments, but there are over 600 conditions and stipulations. And if you want to qualify for getting your portion of the will, the inheritance, you must keep the stipulations. How many of us kept the stipulations? No, not one. None that seek after God. There's none good. There's none righteous. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. So nobody here qualified for the eternal inheritance. So what did God do? God sent his son who became a man, and he became our mediator. First thing he did was he qualified. He was perfect in every single way. And so he received the entire eternal inheritance. And then what did he do? He wrote a new will. He wrote a new will, and the Scripture says here, let's read it together so that you know I'm not just making it up. He says, I'll I'll read the whole thing fast, verse 15. Therefore, he's the mediator of a new will, so that those who are called may receive their promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions, the stipulations, that is, committed under the first will. For where there is a will, there has to be a death, and the death must be established. For a will takes effect only at the death, since it's not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Meaning this, if, if, your, if your parents or your grandparents have left you in their will, it's really not cool to knock on the door, show up and say, hey, I know you're still kind of old and decrepit, but I was wondering if I could get my will now. That's what the prodigal son did. So you don't get it until the person dies. So what happened? Jesus got all the first will. He's the only one who qualified. Then, having all of the eternal redemption, he writes a new will. In the new will, he says, you can qualify by repentance and faith. And then he dies so that the will goes into effect. And you and I, who could have never had eternal life in the old will, have eternal life through the shed blood of Jesus in the new will. Isn't that cool? That's what you got. And the writer just gives you like, you get that in two verses in passing. What is he saying? He's saying as many possible ways as he can think of, Jesus is everything. Now, the book is written to Jews who actually might think that Judaism's better than Christianity. But it does something else for us in modern America. Since we know Jesus is 
better than angels, better than Aaron, better than Moses, better than the tabernacle, better than the old covenant, better than the blood of goats and bulls, better than all that. We can go ahead and assume that if the writer of Hebrews was here today and he was still writing chapters to the book, he could just keep writing, right? Couldn't he say, Jesus is better than Muhammad? Jesus is better than Islam? Jesus is better than Buddha? Jesus is better than, in fact, I'm willing to do this. You fill in the blank. Jesus is better than, no matter what you come up with, I'll stand by the statement. Jesus is better than anything. And that's what the writer of Hebrews wants you to know. And it's why we know the only way to the Heavenly Father is through Jesus. I want to ask for every head to be bowed and every eye to be closed. Maybe you're here this morning. You've never given your life to Christ. You kind of knew about Jesus. Uh, You've been in church some, but there's never a time and a place where you said, Lord, forgive me of my sins and come into my life. I want to belong to you. That's the starting place because Jesus truly is the only way to the Heavenly Father. He's the only way through his shed blood, through his sacrifice. Maybe you're here this morning and you're a believer, but let's be honest, you've been pretty apathetic about your belief. Uh, as Revelation 3 would say, lukewarm. You're kind of going through the motions. It's Sunday, so you go to church. But you haven't had any emotion. You haven't had any passion. You haven't had any zeal in a long time. And we look at this, this, this passage this morning, and we're reminded that Jesus is everything for us. We don't, nobody here had to bring their lamb to me, and I would go into the Holy of Holies and cut the throat and bring the blood back out and sprinkle it on you. Not a one of you had to do that because you have Jesus who shed his blood, the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world so that you could have eternal life. Isn't it time that you start living with that again? Christian, maybe you've been sitting and we've already talked about that you're saved to serve. So find a place to serve, a mission trip to go on a place to help out, a ministry, a life group to be a part of. Find a place where you can grow into the image of God. Maybe there's a burden that you're carrying that I don't know anything about, but I'm here to tell you, Jesus is bigger than your burden. Jesus is better than your burden. Fix your eyes on Jesus and cast all your cares on him, for he cares for you. Whatever your decision, I want you to take a few moments and give yourself to the Lord. Just acknowledge that God has spoken to you this morning and just pray to him and say, God, here's my life. I want you to take it and use it. Father, as these prayers ascend to you this morning, I join my voice with my brothers and sisters in Christ in this room and I say, here's my life. Take me, make me, mold me into the image of your son. Use me. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his perfect sacrifice. Thank you that he gives us our eternal inheritance. Thank you for his everlasting love. So, Father, this morning, we ask your forgiveness for all the times that we chose something else. This morning, we choose Jesus, the author, the finisher of our faith, our creator, our sustainer, and our savior. We choose Jesus, and we ask you to be glorified in our lives because we've chosen your son. And we pray all this in the precious and holy name of Jesus. And all of God's people said, amen. I love it when my mic's hot and I'm singing with the band. It makes me feel like I'm on the worship team. 1 John chapter 4, by way of benediction this morning. 
John's uh, he's the last living apostle. This is one of the last books of the New Testament to be written. He said, Beloved, let us love one another because real love, a copy love, is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and he knows God. In verse 10 he says, This is love. This is how love is defined. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the mercy seat is what we have here for our sins. And then he concludes by saying, Beloved, if God loved us that much, we also ought to love one another. Go this week and love one another. God bless you. Thank you for listening to audio from Emmanuel Baptist Church, located in Billings, Montana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Emmanuel, please visit us online at www.myemmanuel.net.